Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm Rose Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Paul Newsom. Paul is a swim coach from the UK based in Perth, Australia, for many years now. He's well known as the founder of SwimSmooth, uh, a business where him and his network of coaches have been providing coaching and education to athletes around the world for many, many years at this point. I'm not sure exactly how many, but a couple of decades around about, I would say. And one of the really interesting things that Paul has been up to since his previous appearances on this podcast a few years ago is that he was working directly with Chelsea Sodaro ahead of Kona 2022, where she, of course, won the race. So we will talk about what they did and uh, how how that all came about and how it went down, obviously, very well, uh, along with lots of discussion on swim technique improvements with actionable and practical takeaways, not just technique, also the training aspect of things. So there's lots of just really good swim education in this episode but before we get into the interview big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools education and a patented sweat test you can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate sodium and fluid intake and you can also book a free 20 minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team you can get 15 percent off your first order by using the code tts23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to Form the Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens you can see every split and you can see live stroke rate and heart rate if you use polar heart rate monitors and all of this will help you execute your swims better a better control of your pacing and uh, your overall intensity you can also get access to in-depth post-swim analysis with additional metrics in the app and that syncs your workout seamlessly to platforms like Training Peaks and so on the app also has a vast library of workouts and training plans or you can build your own guided workouts and you can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's the interview with Paul Newsom. Welcome back to the Triathlon Show, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Michael. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. It's been it's been a little while. Uh, I think it's has. been three three years or so since we last spoke or is what i want to say i mean that's certainly when we saw each other in mallorca in spain but i think maybe we did something uh, a little bit after that as well but it's, it's great to be back on the show mate i really appreciate it yeah so for the listeners that haven't heard you before or don't know about you can you give us an introduction to who you are yeah, I guess I've been involved in triathlon since, uh, God, 1994. Um, and I did uh, sports and exercise science at the Bath University in the UK, where I was also on the world-class triathlon performance program uh, as an athlete. Um, in 2001, I decided to emigrate over to Australia and uh, became a triathlon coach over here, specializing in swimming coaching particularly. And um, in 2004, I launched uh, a company and a brand called Swim Smooth, and uh, I've been the head coach and uh, obviously the founder of that uh, ever since. So uh, we produce content and uh, training methodology to help uh, swimmers and triathletes specifically improve their efficiency in the pool and, of course, in the uh, in the open water as well. Uh, we've got a big uh, network of coaches dotted around the world. There are certified swim smooth coaches 
And uh, we also provide the uh, coaching methodology for British Triathlon and also World Triathlon or the ITU as it used to be called. Um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a great thing to be involved of, uh, involved with. It's my, uh, obviously my passion, um, to try and help, uh, other swimmers and indeed other coaches learn how to literally swim smooth. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of listeners will have, uh, used your content, your blog and your videos, your, your book, all of that. There's a lot of really great material. Um, and we have talked about it in past interviews that I will link to in the show notes as well about different technique aspects of swimming and we talked about your the swim types that that you have uh as part of your system for uh analysis and and stroke correction uh, and we we have a few things that we are going to talk about that today but the first place i want to start with is actually a bit of a case study because you were working with chelsea sodaro ahead of her ironman world championship win in kona in 2022 with her swimming specifically so can you tell us more about when and how did you start working with her Well, that goes back a few years, actually. Um, Dan Plews, who's one of my very good friends and uh, works and runs the uh, the coaching company Endure IQ, we go back about 25 years, believe it or not, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Uh, in fact, Dan was actually at the very first triathlon uh, with an open water swim that I ever did. He was about 11 years of age, and I think I was 16. And uh, I remember him, he wasn't old enough to actually do the event. He came, he uh, he was actually waiting in the car park for the first swimmer to come out of the water. And then as an 11-year-old, he jumped on my wheel and proceeded to cycle around the uh, the triathlon course on my wheel. So I was like turning around going, who's this little kid <laughs> hanging onto my wheel sort of thing? And it, that was my uh, my first ever open water swim in a triathlon basically as well. So um, anyway, the... Um, We've remained really good friends over the years. Um, he went to Loughborough University. I went to Bath University. He emigrated firstly to Singapore and then over to Auckland. And we've remained in touch that entire time. Um, I've often done quite a bit of uh, coaching for Dan, advising his other athletes and including himself as well. So Dan set the world uh, age group record at the uh, Hawaii Ironman World Championships of eight hours, 24 a few years ago. Just a stunning performance. And I'd actually worked on his swimming uh, for that. So when he started working with Chelsea, he said, he said to me, you know, I'd really like you to have some input in how to, uh, how to improve her swimming. Dan's obviously focus is mainly on the, the science and the preparation on the biking and running specifically. And he said, we've got a bit of a problem because Chelsea doesn't seem to be performing as well on the bike and run as we would like. And we just, we're just sort of scratching our heads. We don't know what's going on here. So I said, would you mind having a look at her stroke? And it just so happens that last year in uh, in May, I was over at the Best Fest in Mallorca, which is an awesome open water swimming event. And I was there as their uh, as their coach. I was running a, a five-day coach education course as well. And uh, Chelsea happened to be there as part of the team BMC, who she raced with last year. And, um, and Dan hooked us up together. We did a video analysis session at the beautiful pool at the Best Center. And uh, yeah, and it sort of started from there, basically. All right. And uh, so so what did you identify during that first session? It was really eye-opening and a really great session to do because when Chelsea jumped in, I had a little bit of a you know, 
a chat with her like I do with any other swimmer um, before I before I take her. And you know, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of how good she was or she could become because at this point she hadn't actually done an Ironman yet, and this was May of uh, of last year. Um, she was actually heading off to do uh, Hamburg the week afterwards, so I knew there was a bit of pressure on because she wanted to do Hamburg and she wanted to qualify for Kona, and that was all I really knew about her at that time. So when she dived in, when I'm doing these video analysis sessions, I sort of split them up into three parts. The first part is obviously to do the filming. Second part is to actually sit down and do the analysis. And then the third part is to actually get on the pool deck working with the swimmer. I I often use like a little radio headset so I can actually talk to the swimmer and give them direct feedback as they're going along. Now, in Chelsea's case, she jumped in. And I'll never forget this because she jumped in and she actually started swimming with a very nice looking freestyle swim stroke, a stroke which I thought, Actually, why why is she having some problems, you know, on the bike and run? It doesn't seem there seems to be a bit of a disconnect here because, as far as I can see, she's actually swimming really quite well for open water swimming and triathlon. And what I mean by that was she was swimming with quite a high stroke rate, which gave a really good rhythm and fluidity, and she had this beautiful two beat leg kick. And and I'm thinking, well, that's very energy efficient for you know saving energy for the bike and run. I didn't know what what she's like at drafting, for example. I didn't know uh, what she's like at sighting and how, how her navigation was. But from a pure mechanical perspective, biomechanical perspective, I looked at a stroke and thought, this looks pretty good, actually. I had a bit of a curiosity, though, in that I then asked her, okay, look, Chelsea, swim for me now at your 1,900 meter, your 1.9K or your half Ironman swim speed. Let me see what that looks like. And it was unbelievable how different she suddenly looked when she was actually at race speed and that was where I thought okay there's a bit of a problem here there's a bit of a disconnect so what she did was ironically even though she had this really high stroke rate this high natural tempo and she looked really fluid in the warm-up as soon as she switched into race mode she lengthened out her stroke added a little bit of a pause and delay at the front so a little bit of an overglide if you like at the front of the stroke, and she started kicking with this monstrously strong six-beat leg kick. And I was like, mm, that doesn't seem too too great. She was only around about 1.5 seconds per 100 meters quicker with this race stroke versus what she'd just done during the warm-up as well. And I'm thinking something's not quite right here. So what we did then, we jumped out onto the pool deck, we went through the analysis, and we looked at the difference, the side-by-side comparison between her warm-up stroke and her race pace, and we started to t- chat about the disconnect between the two. And that was when she then started to divulge with me the fact that in the first 5 to 10Ks on the bike, she just felt like she had dead legs and she wasn't hitting the numbers that she knew she could do in training in terms of the wattage, et cetera, on the bike. And it was also impacting a little bit on the run as well, I was told later on. But um, this was the same thing that Dan had said to me. He said, yep, something's not right. She jumps out of the water and she's just a bit cooked. What's uh, what could that possibly be? And so then we started to look at that. Okay, well, that race pace is completely different to what she did during the warm-up. Could we actually turn back the clock, as it were, and get her to race at race pace with her warm-up stroke? And that was really the nuts and bolts of, of what we did. So there was actually a lot of really good stuff there. All I did during the stroke correction session when we got back into the water was to actually sort of tweak that out we worked on, we did a little bit of a stroke rate ramp test to find out what the optimal stroke rate was for her, which was around about 88 to 90 strokes per minute. Whereas when she was swimming with her race pace, um, yeah, her former race pace, it was about 76 to 78. 
And she'd been told by somebody else that she'd been working with that, unfortunately, anything in the plus 80s is just her like throwing her arms over and the stroke's too short and it's too quick, basically, and that she'd be benefiting from actually lengthening things out and slowing the stroke rate down. Whereas we did the exact opposite of that during the stroke correction session. And I've got video footage of that and um, the difference between what she did beforehand and what she did with the tweaks and just really sort of taking that warm-up stroke and refining it a little bit more. It's like night and day, basically. Um, and as I said, she went to Hamburg the following week. She was first out of the water, led Laura Sedil out of the water there and uh, and went on to produce a really, really solid Ironman performance, uh, feeling great on the bike, felt great on the run and, uh, and qualified for Kona. That's that's really fascinating. And um, eighty-eight to ninety uh, strokes per minute. That's where would you say that that stack up compared to what you would see the top swimmers in long distance triathlon doing? I, I I like to entertain myself when I'm watching Kona in particular. I sit there with the stopwatch, actually that you gave gave us all in Mallorca at the coach yeah. education with the stroke rate mode, and uh, and I look at the stroke rates of the of all the swimmers and try to get get a bit of a feel for the the differences in stroke rate that the different swimmers have and uh yeah i think the 8 to 90 from what i've seen is relatively high not not unheard of high or anything but but a lot of them are a little bit lower than that would you agree um it'd be it's interesting right because you obviously got the male and female wave and chelsea being short and female she tends to actually really benefit from that higher stroke rate so whereas you or i michael might find 88 to 90 exceedingly fast um, yeah, for her, it was the right stroke rate to be sat at. Um, when Florian uh, was one of the leaders there in the swim, he was around about the 66 to 68 strokes per minute. But Marco, as I remember, but he's a completely different athlete. You know, he's much taller, longer limbs, bigger hands, bigger feet, a completely different dynamic in terms of the stroke. The Brownlee brothers, for example, would sit at around about 90 strokes per minute. Um, that might drop slightly for an Ironman distance swim, but it wouldn't be much lower than that. So 88 to 90, when I saw that and when we, uh, we did the, the ramp test to actually work out what that should be for her, I wasn't looking at it and thinking that's exceedingly fast. Definitely not. You know, one of the world's best um, pool and open water swimmers, Gregario Palcinieri from Italy, um, races the 1500 freestyle, one of the world's best, if not the world's best, and is also one of the world's best, if not the world's best, uh, 10K marathon swimmer. And he frequently sits at over 90 strokes per minute as well. So these are pretty high stroke rates. Um, however, you know, I think about some of my experience in the past of what I've done and, and where I've sat. I, uh, I was lucky to win the uh, Round Manhattan Island Marathon swim in 2013, and that's a 48-kilometer swim. Uh, and my average stroke rate around there was 81 strokes per minute. But again, I'm not a particularly tall guy. Uh, I'm not particularly broad shoulders, long arms, big hands. In fact, I've actually got tiny hands and really tiny feet. So what is important for me is is going to be different to what might be important to you, Michael, or might be important to you know somebody else of a different stature and build. And, and that really is what Swim Smooth is all about, is really making sure that we're coaching the individual, not coaching the stroke. So there's not like one number that I need to say, okay, everybody should be at 64 strokes per minute or everyone should be taking this many strokes per lap. It's just impossible to do that. And I think that's where traditional swim coaching has fallen foul you know, the number of times I see people come for me for a training session and they say, oh, my coach has said that unless I can do less than 40 strokes per 50 meters, I'm not efficient. 
but I've seen some of the world's best open water swimmers and pool swimmers. Gregario Palcineri takes over 40 strokes per 50 meters, and yet you'd never say he wasn't efficient. So it's really important to, you know, consider the individual, their body type, their build, and also the discipline and event that they're actually working towards. So by us increasing Chelsea's stroke rate by around about 10 to 12 strokes per minute, it allowed her to detune her leg kick, take some emphasis off the leg kick there, which was what ultimately enabled her to bike and run as well as what she did do. So it's almost like her swimming, by improving her swimming, it unlocked the potential for her biking and running and really for her whole triathlon performance leading into Kona to be obviously as what history shows it was. Yeah, yeah, and just to be clear, I, I wasn't saying at all that it's it's too high or anything. It oh, just no, want, no, uh, yeah, yeah. wanted to understand the the range that exists, and it's an interesting example with Florian and sitting at below below seventy. Yes, uh, yeah, of one 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 thing that I think is quite important because for a lot of the listeners, it will sound impo- if if they have measured their stroke rate at some point, probably getting to ninety will sound impossible. And and I think that it's quite important to point out that you just need, you need a really high fitness level to be able to swim at high at high stroke rates. Well, there's there's two things on that. First thing being, um, if you've got you if you're using like a Garmin, for example, Garmin will actually um, give you the feedback on the stroke rate, as in stroke cycles per minute, as opposed to strokes per minute. So, firstly, you might be listening to this and go, "Bloody hell, that's a really high stroke rate," because what you're actually thinking is 180 strokes uh, strokes per, or it's actually 180 strokes per minute is what you're thinking. The so when we're actually thinking of stroke rate and the way I'm actually referring to it there, I'm talking about right hand, left hand, right hand, left hand, each one of those being one, two, three, four, five, six, as opposed to every time the right hand comes around, which is maybe where your watch is sat on. So that would actually give you a stroke rate on the Garmin site, for example, of half of those numbers that I've just been talking about there. But you mentioned there about fitness and I've got some really interesting scientific research on this, which... Um, has actually been around since 2010, and it's something which I frequently refer to, especially when I'm working with um, swimmers who I term as being overgliders. So these are swimmers who've maybe been taught that they need to lengthen out their stroke and take fewer strokes per lap. Now, a study was done in 2010 over in Texas to look at the, the effect of manipulating a swimmer's stroke rate on their efficiency and economy whilst they're swimming. So the pretense of this was to actually have these collegiate swimmers to work out what their threshold pace was, to work out what their stroke rate was at their threshold pace, and then have them swim in a flume tank and to measure heart rate and oxygen consumption during that swim, with the idea being that then the the researchers would actually manipulate their stroke rate to take it down by 10%, down by 20%, but equally take it up by 10% and up by 20%. So let's put some numbers on that. Let's say, for example, you can swim a 1,500-meter Ironman, sorry, 1,500-meter Olympic distance swim in 25 minutes. That's a pace of 1 minute 40 per 100. So let's say you were in this experiment, you jumped into the water in this endless pool, and the the speed was turned up to 1 minute 40 per 100. All you had to do was swim on the spot for as long as it takes to actually measure your heart rate, measure your oxygen consumption. So let's say it's three or four minutes at that speed. But you'd actually be given one of these little things called a Finis Tempo Trainer. And that Tempo Trainer would be set at your at your natural stroke rate at that threshold pace. So let's give that a number. Let's say it's 60 strokes per minute. What you'd then do is after three or four minutes of swimming and they've collected the data, 
they would then reduce that down by 10%. So from 60 down to 54 strokes per minute, and then eventually from 54 down to 48. And equally, take it up by 10%, so it's up to 66, and then up to up by 20%, up to 72 strokes per minute. So you've got five data points, basically, on, on how that's going. And most people, like you said there, would assume that if you increase stroke rate, it requires greater fitness to actually achieve that. But what the study showed, which is exactly what I was finding with Chelsea, was that if you decrease stroke rate below where it should be at any given level of intensity, what tends to happen is that the swimmer will increase kicking rate, which actually increases heart rate and oxygen consumption, makes the swimmer less efficient, and therefore actually requires more fitness to actually swim at that slower stroke rate. So this is one of the things, uh, Michael, obviously, over the years, the worldview of freestyle swimming has, has, you know, has changed and adapted quite a bit. You know, we're here today talking primarily about triathlon and uh, and uh, and open water swimming and distance freestyle. But when you actually look at the world's best breaststroker at this point in time, Adam Peaty, and has been for the last, you know, quite a number of years now, since at least 2016 at the Rio Olympics, out of all the guys in the Olympic finals, Adam Peaty has the shortest stroke and the quickest stroke rate which was crazy watching the Rio Olympics, which is when he actually won the, uh, the the swimmer of the meet competition for that event, given how good and how dominant his performance was in the 100-meter breaststroke. All the Australian commentators are screaming, he's going, who is this British guy? He's bobbing his head up and down. His stroke's too short. His stroke rate's too fast. And I was screaming at the screen, that is the guy who's going to win the Olympic gold medal and set the world record. And, you know, I use that as a bit of a, bit of a tongue-in-cheek example, except, but it's, it, this is the thing with swimming. It's got to evolve, and we've got to look at what's actually happening out there. And the fact that, you know, I've been able to work with Chelsea Sodaro, take her stroke rate up, but that's actually reducing the effort required on her swim, which then helps her improve her biking and running, that's got to be something which is, uh, is hopefully of, of real value, value to your listeners, considering their own swimming. And I'm not suggesting they ever all need to swim at 88 to 90 strokes per minute, but certainly considering how that, that mechanic works between the length of the stroke and the rate of the stroke and the impact it has then on the leg kick is really quite important. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm referring more to the fact that if, if you swim at a two minute per 100 pace, then probably 90 is for almost every single person going to be too high. Oh at, yeah, at that speed. So, so with fitness, I'm, I might, I might have said speed instead. Uh, actually, so when you when you're swimming 120 or 110 per 100, or even potentially 130, you might that that's where you can benefit from from higher strokes. And 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 for everybody, there is a sweet spot, as you said, with the stroke ramp test, and we will talk about that later. But what about Chelsea still? So did she? Could she immediately kind of flick a switch and and uh, easily mean. swim? Yeah, very, it was a very easy flick, uh, switch to flick. Um, yeah, certainly from a physical perspective, there was still there was still doubt in her mind, I guess, and uh, as there is in anybody making any change to their stroke, is like, okay, well, this is completely contrary to what I've been told. Is it really going to help? But you know, if you're coming with that question of something's going wrong here, I'm not performing on the bike and run. What could it be? Could it be the swim? You've got to obviously think a little bit outside the box, I guess, and, and think, okay, well, maybe what I have been doing hasn't been working if I keep getting that same result. So consequently, you know, it was quite easy for us to flick that switch, especially as she started to not only 
feel better. But one of the things that I do during these video analysis sessions is I actually film using a little chest cam. I actually film the uh, the swimmer making those adjustments and, and progress, and we then play it back at the end of the session so they can see how much better they actually look and uh, combine that with how they feel. And uh, how how did you see improvements? Uh, you already mentioned feeling better on the bike and and the run, but did you see improvements? in uh, in her swimming in the pool or in the open water as well in terms of how easy it was to hold a certain pace or say with the group or or even yeah just standard standardized sessions that she was used to doing did she feel that she could do them easier or do them at a better speed definitely definitely do it better and that, that's that's the interesting phase in, in where we're at with, with her swimming at the moment is that the goal was to make sure that she could get out on the bike and run and make sure that she was hitting the numbers she was capable of So I said to her very frankly, I said, look, you're, all, you're already a good swimmer. You're already hitting some, some good speeds there and stuff. You don't necessarily need to be, this was last year, you don't necessarily need to be that much quicker. But if you can get out of the water feeling that much fresher, then that's really what, that's the problem that we're trying to solve right now. The problem, well, it's not so much a problem, but the thing that we're actually working on now is, is then making her faster as well as feeling more economical. So uh, that's quite an exciting project to be, uh, to be involved with. So between the the session in May and then Hamburg and later Kona, what was the how how did you work with Chelsea on her swim? Was that the only video session you had? But did you did you help her with the programming or her swimming or what happened? It was the only face to face contact that we had, as in me on the pool deck with her. Um, I would have obviously liked to have done a lot more, um, but what we did, we did the next best thing. I flew over to uh, to Auckland in New Zealand, stayed with Dan Plews for a, uh, I think I was there for about two weeks, and uh, and we actually had you know several um, meetings with Chelsea, discussions and uh, in, input on the on the training program that she was doing as well. Because you know, I, I think. Me personally and Swim Smooth to a larger extent, we're known for what we do with our stroke technique work, but really that's only a third of the pie. We talk about the the three keys of efficient freestyle swimming, that being technique, training, and how you adapt to the open water as well. Now, unfortunately, I never did any work with Chelsea in the open water. Um, you know, getting the wetsuit on, going through some some drafting work, etc. But did have a heavy input on the uh, on the training side of things. And you know, Dan understands all of that um, better than anyone on the planet, probably um, in terms of the physiology that's required and. Uh, I was just there to, you know, put that into practice with respect to writing programs, which would uh, which would facilitate that. So, can you give an example of of uh, what that looked like? Uh, just her swimming program and swim structure in terms of the training side of things. We did um, we did a lot of work on. Um, I affectionately know this as or call it uh, a red mist endurance session. Um, so these are sessions which which I've developed over the years um, to specifically help help half and full Ironman athletes really develop excuse me really develop their economy whilst they're um, whilst they're you know for obviously for the for the training then obviously when they're going to the racing these involve longer uh, distance intervals on very short cycle times typically with no warm up at all so. You know, the classic scenario is where a triathlete will go off at the start of the event way too fast and blow up and really screw up their entire race, possibly, by doing so. 
So what I like to do is I almost like to desensitize that um, by doing these sessions. We do them every Wednesday morning at 5.30 over here in Perth uh, and also on a Friday morning at 9.30 as well. So by not giving them a warm-up, what we'll, what we'll basically do is we create a little bit of tension. We create a little bit of anxiety that everyone knows that these sessions, which are 5,000 meters in distance, are going to be really quite challenging. And it creates that feeling of, of being at a, a bit of an event. You know, everyone's a little bit nervous on the pool deck. And I like that. I like that atmosphere. And, um, and they get in and it only takes you one or two of these sessions to go off too fast without a warm-up, blow up, and then really struggle for the rest of the session for you to work out how not to do that. So we incorporated quite a few of those sessions um, within the uh, within the program. If you're listening, Can you explain, want- explain the session for listeners? Yeah, yeah. So let me, if your listeners want to have a, a, an example, let me start off with the classic Red Mist session. So this was a session which I used to do at Bath University um, as an athlete myself. Every Monday morning, we would do 10 times 400 meters. Now, if you do it every Monday morning, <laughs> 10 times 400, it becomes exceedingly boring. So what I do now is the pretense of that session, what the, the physiological makeup, what it gives you as an athlete, I actually sort of refine that and, and craft a session each week, which... Um, which basically gives the same physiological response but has a bit more interest and intrigue than what I'm about to go through with you now. So let me give you this one as a bit of an example. It's only 4,000 metres is this one. It's 10 times 400 metres. But again, you should do it without having a a warm-up. So the idea is you'll do four times 400 metres at CSS plus six, and I'll go through with you in a moment what that means, three 400s at CSS plus five, two 400s at CSS plus plus four, and then uh, one final 400 at CSS plus three. So that's plus six, plus five, plus four, plus three. So you're getting faster as you go throughout these 10 400s, but the number of intervals at each level reduces down as well. You want to take a maximum of 30 seconds rest between each one of these intervals, and if you can do it, even as little as 20 seconds. So it really is like a broken 4K swim. Now, if you're already listening to this and thinking, oh, my God, that's way further than I normally swim, just do it as 10 300s, or you could even do it as 10 200s, you know, to give you that same sort of uh, same sort of format and uh, sort of ease your way in. We call it a red mist endurance session, but if you did 10 300s, you could call it a pink mist, for example. Um, so those paces, and this is what we had to do with, with Chelsea and what it, uh, is what I do with every swimmer that I work with, and I know – the uh, the CSS pace of every single swimmer that I work with intently. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Joe Skipper came over and, and spent quite a bit of time with me over here in, in Perth. And um, Joe's all about his science as well and came over with a with a lactate pro to do some lactate uh, blood testing. And uh, we've been working on his stroke rate, sorry, working on his CSS pace and setting all the, the times and the training zones that he needed to be working at. And I, we didn't actually do a CSS test. I'll tell you how to do that in a second. But I, I guess as, a, as an experienced coach on the pool deck dealing with this on a day-to-day basis, I can pretty much eyeball exactly where somebody's threshold pace is based on some of the key training sessions that they do. And uh, Joe's, I said to Joe, I said, look, your, your threshold pace is 122 per 100, mate. That's in a long course, 50-meter pool. And he said, oh, but I want to get more, want to get more accurate. I want to make sure it's exactly that. So we did this very um, laborious 7 by 200 meter lactate uh, step test. And um, to do that, 
you have to a have the equipment b be very patient c every single one of those uh little lactate uh testing modules um pieces of paper as it were cost around about five us dollars and you frequently waste quite a lot of them during one of these tests so it's an expensive test to do and uh and his, his wife um then girlfriend laura um she uh, she helped us do the test so she was doing the thing i was doing the timing but what you have to do is you have to start off very very slow and each one of those 200s you have to get faster and faster and uh, most people don't pace them out very well and that really screws up the the lactate profile that's produced but anyway we did this test uh, we got all the way through it, it took us about three, <laughs> seemingly about three hours to do it and the result was 121.6 per 100 meters. So what I'd been able to eyeball versus what Joe Skipper was actually doing was 0.4 of a second per 100 meters uh, difference. And that could really just boil down to how good he was feeling on that day versus the, the training that we'd been doing in the days before. So anyway, if you want to do a CSS test yourself to set up those levels, to do the Redmond endurance session like Chelsea Sidaro was doing, what you would want to do is do a 400 meter time trial. So have a bit of a warm up. Do a couple of uh, step-up intervals, so you know maybe four times 100 where you just get your heart rate up a little bit, and then do a 400-meter time trial. You should pace yourself as best you possibly can during that 400. Take that time, take a 10-minute easy swim or a little bit of rest, and then do a 200-meter time trial. And what you want to do is you want to take your 200-meter time away from your 400-meter time, divide it by two, and that is your threshold pace. So let's, for argument's sake, say you did seven minutes for your 400, you did three minutes 20 for your 200. One takeaway of the other there is three minutes 40 per 100. If you divide that by two, your threshold pace is one minute 50 per 100. If you divide that by four, which is 27.5 seconds per 25 meters, and you use your little tempo trainer, you can use that to then pace yourself out accurately. And that's what these Red Mist sessions are all about. It's not just about setting the right pace, but making sure that you are pacing yourself out for the entire duration of the uh, of the, the the swimming session as well. Yeah, and, w- and when you said that you start the redness session at CSS plus six, that simply means uh, if your CSS is one hundred and fifty, you started one hundred and fifty six per one hundred uh, as your pace. Which is, absolutely, which is which would be twenty nine seconds per per twenty five on the beta. Yeah, yeah, and then you and then throughout the session you get down to uh, CSS plus three. You said so one hundred and fifty three. 153 that's right yeah yeah so it sounds you know the whole session the whole red mist endurance session is done at lower slower lower however you want to say it than threshold pace but the cumulative effect of the distance of the intervals combined with very little rest interval between each each interval as well makes it really hard to hit that pace by the end of the uh, end of the session yeah i think especially because of the way that a lot of swimmers and triathletes train which is focused a lot on quite short intervals to be honest and and a lot of rest even if rests are quite short when you look at a one hour swim session you often see athletes that have 45 minutes active swimming time or 40 minutes active swimming time and 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 a lot of athletes are just not used to that being having to swim almost constantly like we do in cycling and running so so i think that (laughs) and when you're racing yes so so that makes it makes makes continuously yeah yeah it, yeah. it, it, it's, um, it drives me nuts when people come to me and say, look, I've done all I can do in the technique. I think I'm pretty good in the open water. And I'll say, well, what do you do during your training? And I say, well, I'm swimming with a master's squad. We do loads of 100-meter intervals with, like, minutes rest between each one. 
and I'm just not getting any quicker. And I said, well, that's your problem right there. The type of training that you're actually doing, it's not, it's suited for a master's swimmer who's going to a master's event who might be swimming 50, 100, 200 meter uh, tops, you know. So it's going to help your anaerobic development, but it's going to do absolutely jack all for your, uh, for your endurance. And uh, yeah, it's super important to, to address that. I, I remember, you know, it's uh, probably going to hate me for mentioning his name here, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, I had Matt Burton, who's a very good professional Ironman athlete over here in Perth. He's an absolute monster on the bike. And he came to me wanting to do the Red Mist Endurance Sessions. And uh, he said, look, I've been doing these 100-meter intervals, lots of rest and recovery, can hold some really high paces. But when he jumped in with the squad, by the end of the, f- the first Red Mist Endurance Session, he was swimming over 17 minutes for a kilometer as a professional Ironman athlete because he'd simply gone off too fast, blown up, and hadn't been doing that right type of training before. You know, so I you know, tried to encourage him to continue as, with that as part of his training program, but uh, I think he found it too hard, to be honest with you, and, uh, and just didn't, it didn't continue with doing that type of training. And the reality is that these tri- type of training sessions are hard. You know, if you want to improve your swimming, You've got to have structure, but you've got to have focus and purpose, and it's got to be specific to your needs as well. So if you are going around in circles thinking, my swimming's just never improving, done loads of technique work, watched all the YouTube videos, which probably won't help you anyway, but uh, you've done your work on your technique, you swim regularly in the open water, definitely start to ask the question, am I doing the right type of training as well? And, of course, that's what uh, myself and Dan worked on when I was over there in Auckland in uh, in June, July last year um, with Chelsea preparing for Kona. So I have to ask, follow up then on Chelsea, what was her CSS uh, that you were working with? Um, I, I'm wondering if I'm allowed to actually say this, to be honest with Michael, but <laughs> um, it was, it, I would say it was around about the 116, 117 per 100 meter marker. But uh, that's long, long course, long course meters. That would be uh, long course meters. Yeah. When she was, when she was really primed and going and going well, I like to say she, you know, she's, I mean, even when she jumped in and did that first 200 meter warm up with, with the pace, sorry, with the stroke that she considered just for warm up, um, she was swimming well under one minute 20 per hundred in a long course 50 meter pool. So, you know, it's pretty, um, pretty, pretty impressive swimming. She was not a, you know, definitely not a, a rubbish swimmer, but, uh, the, the, you know, the problem that we're trying to solve was why wasn't she translating on the bike and run what we know she, or what we knew she could do. And yeah. Yeah. I, I just did some quick math there she she swam 54 47 in kona so that was 127 uh pace per 100 meters uh so uh significantly below but and of course you don't know exactly how accurate the you don't know course how accurate is and- the is and I, I don't know if you've listened to some of the interviews that she's done but she talks about this idea that once she got into that league group um you know she was like this is easy i'm here i'm there yeah. I'm, i don't need yeah. to be any faster and she's she even mentions this idea that she looked over and there's like a rainbow behind her and she saw she you can imagine being at the world championships trying to win the world championships and actually noticing and having time to actually notice a rainbow i would say she was actually in a pretty good economical state at that point to yeah. actually be able to notice that yeah and uh, i guess the final question on uh, on Chelsea and this case study, I guess, what, what was her weekly sw- swim volume like in terms of meters and also how many swims per week, per, how many swims per week did she do? And were there any other key sessions that you would point out in, in addition to the red mist sessions? Yeah. I mean, it, it did fluctuate over the course of the, uh, over the period, you know, um, she would swim most days. We had a, 
doing a couple of um, double swim days as well, which is something which um, I used to do as a as a triathlete back at at the University of Bath, and I know Dan certainly did as well. It's really interesting doing a double swim day because people often people talk about double run days, but double swim days, especially if swimming is not your forte, is something you're very unlikely to do. Um, but my experience of doing a double swim day has always been that yeah, you get that first one out of the way and the absolute last thing you feel like doing in the afternoon is going back to the pool and doing another one. Um, but this, the second session is always typically a lot shorter. And I always marveled at how good personally I would feel when I got, got, got back in the water for that second session, especially with respect to how I was feeling the water, holding the water and, and just connecting well with the water in that second session, even if my whole body might have been a bit fatigued because I'd been for a run that day as well or a bike ride or what have you. Um, yeah, so those double swim days really, really, really helped with that. In terms of the volume, uh, again, that sort of varied a little bit depending on the specific focus and how focused we were on the bike and the, on the run. But uh, it would probably be around the region, around about 18 to 24 kilometers in the week. Some weeks a little bit more, some weeks a little bit less, but something something around about that. And in terms of other specific sessions, um, you know, the Red Mist Endurance stuff is is totally key for a half and full Ironman athlete. Um, we did. Um, some pure technique sessions where she would actually just go and utilize the tempo trainer and work on those stroke rates that we'd actually defined uh, and just get really familiar with that. Um, but, uh, but equally some CSS development sessions. So this is where you are actually swimming a bit faster uh, at around about threshold pace, or even as we call it, like massaging your threshold slightly above and below the threshold pace um, are really, really good. So, I'll give you a classic example of that, and it's, a, it's an example which I use all the time. It's one of my favorite sessions. I call it the Goldilocks set, um, where the swimmer would do four 100s followed by a 200, four 100s followed by a 300, four 100s followed by a 400, and all of those are to be done at threshold pace using the tempo trainer, uh, typically with one beat recovery between each interval. So what I mean by that is let's take the example earlier on of the swimmer who was at 150 per 100. 27.5 seconds per 25 they would do 100 meters at 150 stop and rest and wait for a beep cycle to go around which is 27.5 and then do it again um now that's quite a generous amount of recovery on a session like that but the idea is then how well can that swimmer sustain that pace when they do the 200 which is what we call the baby bear 300 which is a mama bear and like the goldilocks story the 400 being the daddy bear right at the end how well can you actually sustain that pace over distance when you're actually swimming at you know uh, that that set itself is uh, is 2100 meters in total just for the main set yeah um yeah that's great thank you for for that a really cool case study and uh, so let's move on to some other general swim technique questions and some of them i've taken from some of the more recent content that I, I saw that you have put out there. Yeah. One that I found really interesting was your stroke correction hierarchy. Can you talk about that? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that. It's, it's fairly new. Uh, <laughs> but we originally put that out in 2009, believe it or not. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it really does date back a long way. But um, I think as any, as any coach you know, passionate about what they do, you'll typically have some sort of model that you're following, okay? It's like, okay, I'm looking at this swimmer right now. 
what is the most important aspect that that swimmer needs to work on? That's a question I'm always asking myself. And where does that fit within this stroke uh, hierarchy, if you like? Um, the most important thing for any swimmer, and the first question I always ask is, how efficient is this swimmer breathing? Are they holding onto their breath? Are they exhaling underneath the water as they should be doing? Are they breathing? You know, can they breathe bilaterally? Whether or not they choose to breathe bilaterally when they're racing is a different question and a different uh, circumstance entirely. But you know, can they breathe to the right? Can they breathe to the left-hand side? What is the timing of their breathing like? Are they lifting their head too high? That's always very, very uh, a very, very fundamental uh, part of the equation. But right at the top of the stroke rate hierarchy, if we just jump to the other end of this of the spectrum. I'm actually looking at whether or not the swimmer has got the right kicking timing. Now, when I was talking earlier on about a two-beat kick versus a six-beat kick, so remember Chelsea had a two-beat kick during the warm-up, but a six-beat kick when she was swimming at race pace. A lot of people hear that this two-beat kick is supposedly hallowed ground, and that's what you all need to work on. But if you get into developing a two-beat kick too early, and if you're also of the mindset that you need to try and make your stroke as long as you possibly can with the stroke rate as low as you possibly can, you are in danger zone, my friend. And what I mean by that is if you slow your stroke rate down way too much and combine it with a two-beat leg kick, it, is, it can be absolutely disastrous for your stroke. So typically, two-beat kickers work really well and really efficiently with a much higher stroke rate. Those who tend to have a six-beat kick tend to work well with a longer stroke and with a slower stroke rate. If you mix and match the two, so if you get somebody basically going with a really high stroke rate and a really strong six-beat leg kick, you know that's a sprinter. And if you try and do that for distance freestyle, it's going to be you know, it's going to be shocking. Uh, equally, if you try to match a two-beat leg kick with a really long stroke, you're just going to have a massive dead spot at the front end of the stroke and almost like a whip kick or a kick start, as I call it. Uh, between the kicks basically so when i'm working on somebody and i'm thinking about that stroke uh, correction hierarchy kicking timing is right at the very top of that in my opinion and i wouldn't necessarily jump to changing somebody's kicking timing unless they were at that stage in their development which of course chelsea was that was the thing that was i believed at that point was the thing that was actually holding her back. And that's the thing that we actually worked on. So, you know, going through that, um, you might have heard if you're, especially if you're from the UK and you listen to this um, uh, podcast with, with Michael here, um, you might have heard of the uh, acronym BLABT, which is B-L-A-B-T, which stands for body position, leg kick, arms, breathing, and then timing. So they, within that acronym, which I don't subscribe to, I think is completely wrong. Um, the breathing is considered like second last, you know, but if you're breathing, if you can't control your breathing, if you don't feel comfortable exhaling underneath the water, all of the other stuff, the arms, the legs, the body position, it just doesn't matter at all. So in my opinion, breathing has to come first. That's the first part within that within that correction hierarchy. And then I'll be working on body position in the water, which of course in includes you know, uh, things such as your legs and what they're doing. Uh, we'd then be looking at the way the swimmer is actually catching and pulling through and pressing back uh, underneath the body and then start to look at the timing. And there's a whole other myriad of issues which you might look at with respect to like rotation. Is the swimmer rotating well enough? Is their uh, posture and alignment correct within the water? And is that affecting things like drag? And what I say to a lot of people is that hierarchy, as I put it, you know, um, putting breathing 
basically first and then getting towards the timing towards the end there. Um, it really knuckles down. If you're trying to improve your swimming, it really knuckles down to one of two questions um, or an equation, if you like, of, you know, is this swimmer held back by a lot of drag and or is this swimmer held back by a lack of effective propulsion? So sometimes I see swimmers who've got massive drag, like legs dragging down to the bottom of the pool, and it's obvious that the key thing they need to work on is trying to get their bum and legs high. And that can be through a combination of getting their breathing better, getting their body position better, working on their leg kick, working on what they're doing with their arms. It all plays into it. But on the flip side of it, I get swimmers who swim might be the same speed and they've got brilliant body position in the water, but they're still swimming slower than they'd expect. And the question then boils down, well, okay, how are they propelling themselves? Are they kicking really furiously? And is that just totally gassing them? You know, Chelsea falls or at least fell in a little bit into that bracket. Or are they, um, are, they, are they not pulling through correctly? You know, what are they doing with their arms on the, on the catch and the pull through? And one of our swim types, which you mentioned earlier on, is what we call the kick-tastic. So this is a swimmer which uh, typically swims with a pool boy and swims slower than everybody else in their lane. And most people think, oh, no, I use a pool boy. I feel fantastic. My legs are higher. It feels easier because I'm not working as uh, – it's not as challenging aerobically. But most kicktastics who have very, very poor efficiency on their catch and pull through find that they actually swim slower because you're actually taking away their propulsive – how they're generating propulsion, which is their which is their legs, of course, hence the name. Yeah. Kick-tastic. That actually maybe maybe that leads into another question that I have uh, that I was going to ask later, but I'll ask it now. Are there mm. any other examples of how you can use uh, swim toys to diagnose what might be holding you back? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is one of the primary examples, right? Is is the swimmer faster or slower with the pool boy? Most people assume the answer is everyone's faster, but in that case of the kicktastic, they're usually slower. Um, they often then make the misassumption that it's because they're not strong enough in their arms. But really what's happening is you're taking away their source of propulsion and really, really highlighting clear as day, in my opinion, where they need to work on improving. And, and for them, it's the uh, the, the catch and the, the propulsive side of the stroke. So pool boy is very, very good for that, um, as is a wetsuit. I know you wouldn't call that a training tool as such, but Again, a kicktastic typically reports not really getting the benefits from utilizing a wetsuit. The body position is already quite high in the water. In fact, with a wetsuit, especially one that's not suited towards them, uh, it'll actually lift their legs too high and they'll actually end up kicking thin air. So again, you've taken the source of propulsion away from them, uh, which doesn't work well. Um, when we uh, when I started working with uh, Who Wetsuits, when they came on the uh, on the market in 2012 we actually released a wetsuit which is specifically geared towards a kicktastic you know it was a wetsuit for people who hate using wetsuits and the whole idea there was to actually reduce the buoyancy not increase it reduce the buoyancy especially in the legs to make sure the kicktastic sit, sat well within the water um it might sound like i'm picking on kicktastics but um training tools and stuff are really quite useful for kicktastics because um you know, a combination of, okay, well, do you slow down with the with the pool boy? But what happens when you use a pair of paddles? And the type of paddles you use is quite important there as well. So if anybody has got um, very poor mechanics when they're swimming with respect to the catch and pull through, a typical pair of paddles, you know, let's say, I won't mention any brand name sort of thing, but a typical paddle with lots of straps on, et cetera, 
if you've got poor mechanics, i.e. you're maybe reaching into the water and reaching up and putting the brakes on, which an overglider would do, or if you're pushing down on the water, which a kicktastic and an arnie might do, lifting your head high, or your hand is just slipping through the water like a bambino might do, the paddle there, if it's bound to your hand, it's not really going to give you any feedback. But we work a lot with a great company in the US called Finice, and they produce paddles which actually give you really good biofeedback on your swimming. So one of their paddles um, is a pointy paddle. Uh, it's called the Finice Freestyler. It has a keel on the underside. It's shaped like an arrowhead and only one strap for the middle finger. If you cross over in front of your head or if you enter into the water thumbs first or do anything crazy on the pull through, the paddle's designed to fall off your hand. So you get immediate feedback and it's really enlightening for the athlete to know that, okay, something's not going right with my stroke and they can actually feel it in real time. The pool boy is harder to feel in real time. They'll just swim 200 meters or whatever with their lane buddies and be 30 seconds slower than they expected. Whereas with those paddles, you can actually feel what the changes you make into your stroke, how they impact your stroke as you're actually doing it. So I love them. I think they're fantastic. They, They also do a pair called the agility paddle which has no straps at all, just a hole for the thumb. And if you're not catching and pulling through properly, the paddle actually will fall off your hand as well. Yeah, um, I personally use the agility paddles. Uh, they are my favorites. Um, I have one freestyler, one pair of the freestylers as well, or half a pair because I lost one of the paddles, but I should get, <laughs> should get, should get myself a full set. Um, and uh, one, one other thing that uh, I think is important to think about when it comes to technique correction and technique improvement is what is the cause and and what is the effect so i know one example that you've talked about a lot in in the past and i'm sure now as well is when you scissor kick that the problem isn't with your legs and your kick but it, it stems from from other upstream causes so can you talk about that specific example and also if there are other common examples where you see an issue but but you don't necessarily want to go and treat the symptom you want to find the root cause and treat the cause I mean, I think it's important to work like that with every aspect of freestyle swimming, uh, to be perfectly honest. And the um, the notion of cause and effect, uh, my wife is actually a physiotherapist, a very good physiotherapist dealing in shoulder injuries specifically. So everyone jokes that we've got a really good family business going on. You know, I injure everybody, she fixes them, and it goes round and round. It's obviously not true, of course, but uh, but that's the that's the in joke here in, in Perth. And um, she's taught me a lot about swim coaching indirectly because of her work with physiotherapy. So physios are always looking for the root cause of something. So down the kinetic chain, you know, you present with a sore lower back, but is it actually a back that's the problem, or is it tight hamstrings? For example, you know, maybe you've got an issue with your knee, but is it something going on with your with your hips or or with your ankles, etc.? So that's very much the way the physio works. And um, you know, we've been we've been together since two thousand and three. My God, twenty years. And um, we've been together a long, long time, and I've learned so much from Michelle in that respect, in terms of how I um, how I coach and how I think. Um, and I've obviously been able to pass that on to the coaches and the and the governing bodies that I work with as well. So, cause and effect. There are, let's say, there's twenty things that could be going wrong with your stroke. Maybe it's thirty. Maybe it's forty. But the problem is. If you go away giving a swimmer 20 different things to work on within their stroke, their brain is just going to completely implode. So the whole idea of cause and effect, and you know, you make the example there of, of scissor kicking. So maybe somebody's crossing over in front of their head and it's causing their legs to scissor kick apart. 
It's easy to look at that as two problems, but our whole swim smooth methodology is all designed to actually get people thinking about simplifying the process and saying, okay, yeah, you've got a scissor kick, but that's not your problem. Problem is the crossover. Fix the crossover and the leg kick will improve as well. And that's very much the, the focus that we have on that. Sometimes it's, it's really funny. Sometimes you can be going through a video analysis and you, even if you've been as clear as you possibly can about, okay, these are the two or three things we're going to work on today. This is the order that we're going to do them. These are the drills that we're going to do them. Sometimes you'll still get a swimmer asking at the end, um, but what about the leg kick? You didn't mention the leg kick. You haven't, you haven't told me anything about my leg kick. Good coaching, in my opinion, is as much about knowing what to leave out as what it is to actually include within your coaching with that swimmer or triathlete or whoever you're actually working with. So just because I might have skipped over, seemingly skipped over somebody's leg kick, is not because I've forgotten about it or don't know anything about their leg kick or what have you. It's because it's not important for that swimmer at that point in their development to actually be focusing on that. And to try and actually focus on it as well as everything else just purely becomes a distraction. So cause and effect thinking, you know, and like I say, we, we could spend another half an hour here, Michael, actually listing out all the different things that you could think about. For example, I'll just give one more. Let's, let's go with the arm pull through. So I mentioned a moment ago that paddles and how they uh, do or do not change the mechanics of when you're swimming. I mentioned that Arnie's. So Arnie's are basically the swim classic swimmer who looks like they're fighting the water. Their stroke rate is too quick and their body position is too low. And typically we'll see them pulling through with a very, very straight arm pull through. When you're working with an Arnie, there are about four or five reasons why their legs might sink low. And one of those reasons might be because they're pushing down with that lead arm to lift their head really high to take a breath or sighting or whatever it might be. And that if that push down is one of the things that's contributing to the leg kick uh, or the legs being low in the water, then that's something you'd want to want to fix. You know, ultimately when you're working with an Arnie, the, the key message is look, our net result here today is we've got to get your legs sitting higher in the water. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to work on how you're pulling through. We're going to work on the fact that you're holding onto your breath underneath the water. We're going to work on those tight hip flexors because basically what that's doing is it, that's actually causing your legs to sink a little bit because your hip flexors are so tight. But we're going to do it in a very systematic order, step by step. We're going to work out which is the most important thing whilst we actually go through this process. And at the end of today, We'll sit down and we'll just summarize it to one or two key points. And what I, one of the things that I really like to do with a swimmer to make sure they're absolutely crystal clear on what they need to work on is give them the analogy of, look, if you had to go and have a coffee with a mate today and you've only got 30 seconds because they're going to be bored to tears about you talking about your triathlon again, what would you tell that swimmer? Oh, sorry. What would you tell that mate over coffee in 30 seconds? that you need to work on? What did you do with that crazy guy with that funny English slash Australian accent? What did he tell you to do today in 30 seconds or less? And it helps to really narrow that focus down, which is obviously super, super important. Yeah, yeah. And it makes it so much easier as well when you're in the pool actually trying to work on it to, to just, it's, it's hard enough to improve one thing, isn't it? So if you have five things that you're trying to improve, then it might be more or less impossible. Um, and and on a similar note, I guess on the, I guess in individualizing the the advice that you give to each swimmer and and accepting that not everybody should swim with the same stroke as well that we talked about before. You mentioned Florian being 
much taller, longer limbs than Chelsea and your small hands and all sorts of things that, that lead to lead to athletes not having the same optimal stroke for them. Can you are there some other important or common reasons that what is the best way for one person might not be the best for another, just that listeners should be aware of in addition to those those factors? Yeah, I think I mean I think we've covered most of the aspects to be honest with you but you know people's to be honest with you even people's learning style their personality plays a little bit into it as well so i've got a collection over the 20 years i've been doing video analysis i've got a collection of tens over i was working out the other day it's over 10,000 video analysis recorded video analysis sessions that i've done over the years which is an insane amount and uh, I've got a massive, massive uh, hard drive underneath, <laughs> underneath here, which actually stores them all. And I've been able to actually notice patterns and trends in the way that I actually liaise and communicate with each swimmer by, uh, by their swim type. And you might think, well, that's pigeonholing people. But the reality is that in the past, every swimmer, whether they're swimmer, triathlete, sprinter, distance swimmer, male, female, uh, big, short, tall, fat, strong, whatever they might be, basically, it's all been pigeonholed into the one simple way of, okay, this is how swimming should be taught and this is how you should swim. So the whole concept of the swim types and recognizing these six different types, and, you know, there might well be more, though there's definitely crossbreeds, people going from Arnie to Overglider, for example, is a very common crossbreed there. But I've, I've been able to actually work out and, and really um, – attach learning styles and personalities to those swim types and one of the most interesting ways i've noticed that as well is the amount of time i actually spend on the video analysis component of that 75 minute session with the swimmer so typically an arnie will sit next to me so this is a swimmer who's very kinesthetic they just want to get in the water and get on with it and 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 get the practical stuff done my video analysis with that swimmer might only last 10 or 12 minutes and i've got like I say thousands of recordings of, of how that process works with that swimmer. But then you have a very analytical mind, somebody like a, an overglider who wants to really understand the science and the logic behind what you're telling them. And that video analysis session can go on for about 45 minutes in some cases because of all the questions that they ask. So I think being able to tap into that and not think, okay, well, so-and-so is this way, but I've got my own way of coaching and they're just going to have to deal with the, my way of coaching. You've got to mold yourself as a coach. You've got to make sure that you actually recognize people's learning styles, their personalities, their backgrounds, their experience, and really obviously customize that experience for the swimmer themselves. And, you know, that's why the adage of, you know, coach the individual, not the stroke is such an important feature of, of being a swim smooth coach and what we're all about. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And uh, we mentioned stroke rate and a stroke rate ramp test. Can you explain how that works? I love doing these, and it's not it's not super scientific by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but if I do a video analysis session, I won't typically. Chelsea was a little bit of a um, an anomaly because she made such rapid progress so quickly, and we had enough time. And knowing that I only had this one session with her, that we did manage to do a video, sorry, a stroke rate ramp test to some extent in that first session. But a ramp test, a stroke rate ramp test should normally be done in the second session with the swimmer. Um, and even then, only if it's really required. 
So I think what I'll probably try and do for you, Michael, is actually make sure that you've got a, a link to our um, stroke rate um, chart, basically, which shows a range of if you're swimming at X speed, is your is your stroke rate too fast or too slow at this given speed? So earlier on, for example, you used the example of two minutes per 100 meters. Well, the stroke rate that would be appropriate for that swimmer might range between about 50, 52 strokes per minute all the way up to, let's say, 62, 63 strokes per minute. But if you're a much quicker swimmer, that range might be greater. And the whole reason there is a range is to account for different people's heights and builds. So working with the working with the stroke rate, you can sort of like eyeball swimmers and go, that swimmer is definitely in need of a stroke rate ramp test because their stroke rate is too fast or too slow. Let's work out where their optimal range should be. But if you do it on the first session, it's sort of almost null and void because you're usually trying to fix those aspects of the stroke. So if you've got an overglider, you're looking at ways in which you might make them bring their stroke rates up a little bit. If you've got an Arnie, you're looking at ways in which you might bring that stroke rate down a little bit. Um, so it makes no sense on that first session to do a stroke rate ramp test until that swimmer's had a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, whatever it might be, to actually bed those changes down and then look at doing one of these ramp tests. So let's say, for example, we're in that second session and we identify that, okay, we've got an overglider here. He's still only at 44 strokes per minute, which is really slow, but definitely not the slowest I've ever seen. The slowest I've ever seen is 27 strokes per minute. If you've got a tempo trainer, try that. It is incredibly difficult and is clear as day why it's very, very inefficient. But, you know, overgliders are still out there and uh, we're still making our missions to try and help them as we try and help every other swim type. So let's say this swimmer has got a 44 stroke rate of 44 strokes per minute. What I typically do is say, okay, look, we're going to start even slower than that. Uh, we're going to start maybe six to 10 strokes per minute slower than that, depending on where they're actually starting. So let's say we start at 38 strokes per minute. The swimmer has to swim 50 meters at 38 strokes per minute using a tempo trainer. All they have to do is try and swim as efficiently as possible with their, you know, with their stroke at that given stroke rate. And what I'll do as the coach is I'll actually count how many strokes they do per lap. I'll measure the time it takes them to do that lap. And at the end of the lap, I'll ask them out of 10 how hard it felt. So one out of 10 is very easy. 10 out of 10 is very hard. People interpret that in different ways. So it might not be, okay, is this hard because I feel like I'm putting in a real effort, but it might be hard just simply because it's really awkward as well. But nonetheless, it's just a very subjective way of looking at it. You know, the, the time it takes them to do the lap and the number of strokes that they do and the stroke rate that they're at, that's very objective. But the subjectiveness is rating of perceived exertion on 1 to 10 of what it actually felt like. And then I'll often ask them some specific comments about what it actually felt like, you know, was it fluid? Was it, I'll really, I won't, I'll ask them what it felt like, but they'll give me the feedback and I'll just note that down. And then what we'll do is once we've done that first 50 meter interval, we'll then step up the stroke rate by three. So it becomes 41 then 44 then 47, 50 and so on and so forth. And I'll typically take them to a point which might be anywhere in the order of around about 15 to 20 strokes per minute quicker than where they were at the start of it. So it usually takes me maybe about eight to 10 times 50 meters to actually do that. What we can then find is a real clear sweet spot usually becomes quite apparent where the swimmer is both feeling good, reporting that they're feeling good. They're not taking a, a, an excessive number of strokes to do each lap, but we don't have a, a uh, it's quite important to point out there that we don't have a, a, a number in mind of what, how many strokes they should be doing. It's going to be different for everybody um, and where they're holding a good pace. 
And once we get to that point, the obvious um, disadvantage of this particular test is that, okay, well, it's only over 50 meters. What happens when you do 100 or you do 200 meters or 400 meters or 10 times 400? Where does, it, where does it need to go then? But the idea of the test is to sort of almost just like be a waypoint, a marker, a, a pathway, if you like, to where that swimmer might be operating more optimally and then to give them the encouragement to actually go and do a training session where they use the tempo trainer, just like I did with Chelsea. It might be 10 200s. Let's try and do it at 88 strokes per minute, Chelsea. Let's go 30 seconds rest, and let's see what the response is. You know, what times are you doing at that stroke rate? How do you feel after it? And all those sort of things. So, yeah, the, the stroke rate ramp test is, is really good fun, and, and it harks back to, you know, lots of different ramp tests, physiological ramp tests that I would have done at Bath University doing studying sports and exercise science. I just thought, how can we actually apply this to swimming to give people a real, really easy, practical way to know where they should be at. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. Uh, definitely makes makes sense that you see it as a as a marker of, of where they could be, not necessarily that this is the stroke rate that you absolutely have to swim at because fifty meters is quite different from an Ironman, for example. And exactly. and for the for the listeners, if you haven't used a tempo trainer, because we've been talking about it in different contexts here, we're talking about setting it as a metronome basically to keep your stroke rates. So you would have a beep every every stroke, but but in the when we talked about, for example, holding a certain pace in the red mist session, then you would set it to beep at a certain time interval so that every time you hit the wall the 25 meter or the 50 meter mark depending on your pool size or 25 yard mark uh you would hear a beep if you're on time or you would notice that oh i'm a bit too fast or a bit too slow so there are different modes that you can use with the with the tempo trainer uh just to make sure that everybody understands uh the context right, yeah of there is there is uh without going too much off of the tangent but as you've asked that quite or highlighted that um, there is one other mode which we use for um, cycle times, basically. So I actually call these red mist cycles where it allows me to standardize the training session across the group of swimmers that I'm working with. So we might have a range in a, any given red mist session of between 115 per 100 at threshold pace up to 2 minutes 15 per 100. And sometimes I'll actually tra- set a training session where we're not actually swimming at a very predetermined pace of CSS plus 4, for example, I might actually say, look, we're going to do now, let's say we're going to do five times 300 meters, but I want to ensure that you're all going to get a standardized amount of recovery based on trying to actually get ahead of the beeper. And this is very similar to a classic master session where this coach might say, right, we're going to go 10 100s on a 130 cycle. And if you swim 120, you get 10 seconds rest. But the problem with doing it on a clock is that it's typically always rounded out to the easiest way of actually reading that clock. So, you know, across the board, it might be, okay, you're on 130s, you're on 145, you're on two minutes, you're on two minutes 15. But that gives a very different type of session based on the swimmer relative to their threshold pace. So somebody might be getting a very large amount of rest just because they've rounded up or a very little amount of rest because they've rounded down because that's easy, the easier way to actually use it on the clock. These red mist cycles are actually relative to their threshold pace, which ensures that we've got that standardization across the board. So I know that everybody in my squad, whether they're 115 per 100 or 2 minutes 15 per 100, is getting the same physiological response because the session's been written to in a way that, that delivers that. Yeah. Um, and let me just look at my questions. I think we covered the one final question before the rapid fire questions would be, 
can you list the top three mistakes that you see in in age group swimmers in particular or triathlon swimmers what what they are but also how would you go about correcting these top issues okay um really good a lot of it uh relates back to the, the hierarchy that we discussed earlier on um but probably the most common thing that i see swimmers of all levels um doing wrong is actually holding on to their breath underneath the water I see it all the time over in the uk which is where i'm from obviously um i know that a lot of the coaching curriculums over there talk about holding on to breath to improve your buoyancy but if you think about it if you're trying to lay horizontally in the water and you're holding on to all that buoyancy in the chest and lungs that's only going to exacerbate your poor body position issues that you might have it's going to lift you up at the front and sink your legs down at the back it's also going to make what should be a very aerobic activity feeling a lot more anaerobic and feeling like you're quite anxious and almost like you're gasping for air. So one of the exercises that I do to actually override that really dead basic is we'll go down to the deep end of the pool with the swimmer and get them to do a series of sink downs. Um, so not using arms or legs to push down to the bottom of the pool, but just by regulating the breathing, learning how to exhale properly allows the swimmer to sink down and then we just transfer that cross into their into their swimming so that'd probably be you know uh number one uh thing that i see uh wrong within some of this somebody's stroke crossing over in front of the head tends to be a massive issue and this is one which it's not apparent just how many people do this or the magnitude to which they do it until you get the video on a long pole above the swimmer looking at like a bird's eye view down and uh, it's really, really common to see. I, I mean, I know I do it in my own stroke. Um, one of the one of the major um, symptoms of crossing over in front of the head, it, it can put a lot of pressure on the front of the shoulder. And even though I practice and live and breathe everything I'm telling you here today, I'm still only human. And I, you know, I've got issues dating back to me being as a kid, where I used to only breathe to the right hand side, used to cross over with that left arm. And when I fall fall back into my old old patterns, you know that tends to happen. So crossing over in front of the head is is very um, is very common. And you mentioned there, Michael, that you've lost one of your Finney's freestyler paddles. I almost said at that point, don't panic, because one of my favourite drills is what I call the javelin drill, which only requires one of those paddles to fix a crossover. Um, basically, what you do is you kick on your side with a pair of flippers on with one of those pointy paddles on the lead hand. 25 meters, drawing your shoulder blades together and back, and then at the halfway or the 25-meter marker, you then start to swim freestyle, breathing specifically away from that paddle, and it focuses all of your attention on making sure you're not crossing over whilst you're breathing in. And uh, to be perfectly frank, if something's going to go wrong with your stroke, it will go wrong when you're taking a breath in. So that paddle's there to actually really focus your attention on pointing forwards whilst you're breathing in as opposed to allowing that hand to cross over. And I think the third thing, which I which I see on a very very regular basis, is it's a little bit more advanced as this, but it is this, it is something which captures people's attention. And in uh, way back in 2010, we started working on a, a video which I put out as a DVD at that point called the Catch Masterclass, so Swim Smooth Catch Masterclass, and just looking at the way people actually uh, basically pull through underneath the water. Um, it's very easy to jump forward a couple of steps and think about the angle at the elbow halfway through the catch and pull through, which should be between 100 and 120 degrees. A lot of people make the mistake of pulling through with a very, very straight arm. But if we dial it back a couple of steps, when somebody goes into the water, as they extend forwards, what I typically see people doing is dropping their elbow as they extend forwards. Now, I've used a term there which I actually hate using. I hate 
saying drop the elbow because in my opinion when you actually look at elite swimmers versus non-elite swimmers from a side angle the height of the elbow relative to the surface of the water is usually not too much different but if you're actually reaching forwards and reaching up it's actually more so the problem with the height of the fingertips relative to the elbow which gives the impression that the elbow is dropping but if you focus your attention on the depth that that hand is reaching to you can relatively speaking keep that elbow much higher to set you up for that much better catch and pull through so you know the depth of the hand at the start of the catch the initiation of the catch is very 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 important and is hugely problematic in fact i'm about to leave uh, after we've done this podcast and go and do a um a video analysis session with a swimmer and I, she's been in my squad for three or four sessions now and this is one of the things that i've actually highlighted within a stroke i know I've got a, a little bit of a head start. I know it's one of the key things I'm going to need to work on with her stroke today. Yeah. And uh, let's finish off with the rapid fire questions. Uh, what is your favorite place to train? Oof, I saw this when you sent it through and I, I, I do have lots of uh, favorite places to, to train, but um, my absolute favorite place to train, I guess, is a place called Leighton Beach. Uh, down here in in Perth in Western Australia and just last week believe it or not an airplane crashed into the water just there a light aircraft and uh, they had to she did a very good landing with this lady and, and got the got the plane out of the water so we haven't been able to swim over that stretch of water for the last couple of weeks but it's not so much the place it's the person that I swim with and every Sunday morning I actually swim with my mate Chris down there over this stretch of water and we do anywhere between 1500 and 3k it's not particularly long swim but it's more important for me to just actually have that sort of shared camaraderie, meet up with my best mate. We go for a coffee afterwards. We chew the fat. We have a little chat about what's happened during our week and stuff. And it's uh, it's more about the it's more about the person than the place, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, yeah, I do have uh, I do have plenty of other other places which I love to train and stuff like that. But that's that's probably my favourite. And what's a bucket list race or event that you would want to do? I was thinking about this one as well. I mean. Primarily for the last, certainly the last 10, 15 years, I've, I've mainly just been focused on marathon swimming. Um, and that's taken me to some really crazy and cool places. Like last year, I was in Montenegro um, doing this brand new swim. It's called the Ultra Swim 33.3, which is a fantastic event. The idea is you do 33 kilometers split over four days. Uh, 33 kilometers is the theoretical shortest distance between uh, Calais, as for, between Dover and Calais for the English Channel, which I've done as a continuous swim um, in 2011. But this event is designed to actually get um, get swimmers in and actually almost do it on like a Tour de France style, style of uh, racing, where each day, you know, the the, the winner has a uh, theoretical yellow jersey, if you like, and. Uh, and uh, and you you accumulate towards the end of the race. So that was a great event to do last year, and I highly recommend people put it on their bucket list. But on my bucket list, um, I've, one of the races that I've never done is the Laguna Phuket Triathlon um, in Thailand. And what inspires me about that event is there's, the swim is in two parts. You start off in buoyant, salty ocean or seawater, uh, you run over a little bank and then you go into this lagoon, which is fresh water. And everyone says that second part of the swim is terrible because you feel like you're sinking really low in the water there. So I've never done it. Um, I haven't actually got any plans to do it, but uh, it's always been very much high on my on my bucket list. Maybe maybe at some point in the future I'll go and do that one. 
Yeah, that sounds interesting. And uh, finally, if you could acquire expert level in any skill in the world for yourself in an instant, what would that be? I'd learn to play a musical instrument or be able to play a musical instrument, specifically the guitar. I absolutely love music, Michael. It's like, it's my, it's my passion. I really, I love all sorts of music, you know, from sort of Metallica all the way to I'm listening in the background, uh, some classical music. So I have a, a massive range of, of what I like. I'm going to see Fatboy Slim in a couple of weeks here in Perth uh, as well. So um, I've got a got a huge range, but one thing I've never, ever done is I've never picked up a musical instrument and learned how to play one. And I'm sort of slightly daunted by that fact uh, at 44 years of age, never too late to learn, just as I tell my swimmers, right? But um, I would love to be able to, you know, Sit around the sit around the campfire. We've been doing lots of camping during COVID because we haven't been able to get out of Western Australia. I'd love to be able to sit down at a campfire and just be able to strum a few tunes on a guitar. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think it would be really interesting for you, especially with your coaching and and your kind of technique eye for technique in swimming to see how which aspects of that that you would transfer into learning to play a musical instrument because i used to play some instruments uh, when i was younger not to any like super high level or anything uh, or even a high level but but i played and and as a coach i find that that has actually helped me in some in some aspects of triathlon coaching not not just technically but even just the kind of a certain mindset i guess of how to improve certain aspects of of your craft so i think i think that there's there is a there is an underappreciated uh Tra- transfer effect between between sports and music in from from a coaching perspective yeah it definitely strikes me that that uh, patience would be a virtue with that type of thing especially yeah. learning later on in life and stuff but both my kids um uh my daughter plays piano and guitar my son plays uh plays piano and he can he can turn his hand to almost anything and do it he's so talented at, at lots of different things basically um and i just look at both of them and go Bloody hell, that's amazing! But um, yeah, I just haven't haven't taken that step. Maybe I will. Maybe I will. Yeah, yeah. All right, and, and finally, Paul, uh, where can people find you and Swim Smooth? Yeah, they can find uh, us at swimsmooth.com. Um, and due to be relaunched next week is the swimsmooth.guru. Depending on obviously when this uh, when this show goes out, but um, yeah, swimsmooth.com. You can find us on uh, on Instagram at uh, at swimsmooth. And um, obviously on Facebook there as well, just under uh, under Swim Smooth there as well. So yeah, be uh, be great to hear from people. Drop us a line. You can get me uh, if anybody wants to drop me a, a direct email. I'm simply on Paul at SwimSmooth.com, and uh, I'd love to hear um, a little bit about your your listeners uh, swimming and uh, and how me or my team of coaches around the world might be able to help them out. Perfect. Yeah, and it, uh, when this episode is released, that will all be out. So so there's uh, no issue with that. Thank you so much, Paul. It was great to chat to you again and hope to do it again soon. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me back on the show. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with uh, links to all of Paul's previous uh, appearances on that triathlon show as well as uh, the Swim Smooth website. Don't forget to check out the Swim Smooth Guru website as well. And there's also a link to a short video with some before and after footage of Chelsea Sodaro before and after the intervention that uh, they did together with with Paul to change her swimming stroke. So that's really interesting to look at. 
Next Monday, I interview Peter Dinders, who is a duathlon and running coach working with some of the best duathletes in the world. Uh, so that's a really exciting one. We will, of course, chat duathlon, but also just general training and coaching principles. Uh, so definitely don't miss that one, even if you're not a duathlete. Uh, and if you want to improve your triathlon performance and want some help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan. We have options for athletes of all different levels and for different budgets. And no matter what the size of your goal is, there is no startup fee for coaching, nor is there any minimum commitment term. And for the training plans, we have a 100% satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on our website, so you can get your money back if you're not happy with it. Uh, or an exchange guarantee, so you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through Training Peaks. We also have consultation and customized plan options if that works better for you. So you can find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss what your specific goals and needs are and what would be best for you. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free fuel and hydration planner to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get a specific and effective race strategy and book a free video consultation with the team if you want to refine it further. Use the code TTS23 at checkout for 15% off your first order. And thank you to Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the four smart swim goals. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving crap.